Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, very famous chapter in the book of John. Our context is, this is early Friday morning or maybe late Thursday night before Jesus got killed, probably about 9 o'clock on Friday morning. He has just taken his disciples, 11 of them, not Judas, away from the Last Supper, and he has been walking on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, he might have gotten near Gethsemane at the time he was given this discourse, somewhere on the road. Chapters 15, 16, and 17 are on the road to Gethsemane. Chapter 14 is the upper room, the last discourse he gave the disciples at the upper room after he washed their feet. So that's our context. We start with John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and what things did he speak? Well, let me give you a preview excuse me, a review, I guess I should say, of John chapter 16. This is the end of this discourse on the road to Gethsemane. I can't give you all of the a summary of all of the discourse. It was too long, chapters 15 and 16. But in chapter 16, he says, uh, I'm telling you all these things so that you won't fall away. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. Then he told them about the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then... After he talks about the spirit of truth coming, he says, your sorrow will be turned into joy as he tries to encourage them. A little while, you will not see me because I'm going to the Father, he told them. But then they didn't understand what he was talking about. And he says, okay, you're going to weep and lament after I go, but later you're going to be, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And so he encourages his disciples. And the last thing he says in, on the road to Gethsemane, he says, I have said all these things in figures of speech. Pretty soon the hour is coming while I will speak to you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask the Father on your behalf, and he will, he will give you all that you ask. And the disciples finally say, oh, now we understand. Now you, we understand you're speaking in plain speech, not using figures. You're going to leave us. You're going to die. And then Jesus says, you're going to be scattered each to his home, and you're going to leave me alone, sort of, sort of a negative prophecy. But that's exactly what happened. They ran when he got arrested, which is going to happen in just a few short hours. And then he finishes up in John 16. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. A very positive thing, as he, as he then begins. A nice positive thing to say just preceding the, the high priestly prayer in John 17. So John 17:1, Jesus spoke these things, all these things I just read to you, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That's the hour of his crucifixion. It was getting real close now. Glorify your son that your, the son may glorify you. All right, looked up to heaven. That is the typical attitude of prayer, according to the NIV Study Bible in the New Testament. At the raising of Lazarus, John 11:41, they removed the stone, then Jesus raised his eyes, looked up to heaven, in other words. Psalm 123:1, I lift up my eyes. I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven. So that was a typical way of praying. I, I'm not really big on worrying about postures of prayer. I know most of the time today we bow our heads and pray, and there's different ways you can do it. You can stand and sit. It doesn't really matter. But just as a historical point, Jesus looked up to heaven when he prayed. And Jesus said, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There you have the son and the father intimately connected, which happens over and over and over again in the book of John. What does glorify mean? Glorify means, this is my definition, to make public the glorious, excuse me, a circular, make public the excellent characteristics of someone. For example, you glorify an athlete, you make public and tell everybody about what a great athlete he is. All right, so glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
Let's read John 13, 31 through 32 in that context. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Well, that's a little confusing. Glorified means the excellent characteristics of God are going to be broadcast to the world when the world knows that God's Son, Jesus, was resurrected from the tomb. So when the Son of Man is glorified, resurrected, God is glorified. He's given glory because of that resurrected resurrection. He's glorified in Jesus. Now, if God is glorified in Jesus, God will also give glory back to Jesus and will glorify him at once. How does Jesus get glory? Because he rose again from the dead. So, to summarize all that, Jesus will ultimately, ultimately be glorified by his resurrection, which will then glorify the Father, who caused the resurrection. And so, Jesus is looking past the crucifixion here, and he's looking to the resurrection. Now, this is an interesting thing about this high priestly prayer. Very little talk about all the, the sadness and the grief that's come, coming. Jesus has already told them, you're going to be scattered, you're going to deny me. He's already, he's already, he's, I'm going to leave you, you're going to have sorrow when, they, when I leave you. He's already given them the bad news about the crucifixion in chapters 14, 15, and 16. But now in chapter 17, he's focusing on the, the good news, the resurrection, the glory. We go to verse 2 in John 17. For you, the Father, gave him, the Son, authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. Authority over all flesh Jesus had. Well, I thought the devil was the prince of the power of the air. I thought the devil was the rule of the world. A lot of time people have this question. And every time you hear this question, you just need to remember John 17, 2a. For you, the Father, gave him, the Son, authority over all flesh. That would include all people who are following the devil. Now, if you recall, I think it's Ephesians 2, if I'm the prince of the power of the air verse. It says that the devil is working in the sons of disobedience. He's the ruler of the world. The world there means the unbelieving portion of the population on the planet Earth. The world is unbelievers. The devil is working in the hearts of unbelievers. And yeah, he's the prince of that world, but he ain't prince of the planet because God, Jesus, has authority over all flesh given to him by God. We don't need to give the devil more glory than he, or more power and authority than he's got. Now let's look at the second half of John 17, 2. So, the so refers to the fact that Jesus has been given authority over all flesh from the Father. And because of that authority over all flesh, he may give eternal life. He may give eternal life. Well, eternal life, of course, is a life characterized not only by duration, but also by quality. A life that's perfect with no sin. In other words, the life that we're going to have in heaven. Now, who does Jesus give that eternal life to? To all, to everybody on earth, no, to all you have given him. There is a restriction. There is a condition. He's given eternal life, but only to those that the Father, you, have given him, the Son. So you see that eternal life is a gift from the Father to the Son and ultimately to us believers. It is a gift. It is not something we work for. God's initiative in salvation is stressed, as the NIV Study Bible says. Jesus didn't say, so that he, the Father, may give eternal life to all who believe, that would emphasize the response of believers. But the source of the salvation is emphasized. He will give eternal life to all you have given him, to all that the Father has given him. That's reminiscent of the sheep. Remember all the sheep that God has given the Son? And Jesus came to get those sheep. Well, I've got the scripture here. I'll read it. John six thirty-seven through 39. Everything the Father gives me, the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me. I emphasize, he has given me. He, the Father, has given me the Son, which should raise them up on the last day. So you see, the church is a gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus came down here to collect his gift. Now let me give you a quote from Adam Clark, a commentator I've used so much, who is an Arminian, concerning this word all, so he may give eternal life to all. This is what Clark says, quote, The design of God is that all should have eternal life, because all are given for this purpose to Christ. This is absolute, in my humble opinion, nonsense, because Clark has done something which is quite irritating. He left off the condition. It's not all. Not, not Jesus didn't have authority over all flesh so that he may give salvation, so that he may give eternal life to all in the world. It's all you have given him. There's your condition right there. All that you, the Father, have given him, the Son. And Clark completely left that condition off. I do not like it when Armenians do that sort of stuff. And Clark is a well-accomplished theologian, but he's driven by his theology to think that God gave salvation to all. No, he didn't. He gave it to the elect. That's called limited atonement or particular atonement or particular redemption, whatever you want to call it. Go to John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that you may know that they may know you, the Father, the only true God, and the one you, the Father, have sent, Jesus Christ. Now here again we have the close intimate connection with God the Father and God the Son. As I've said over and over again, it's everywhere in the book of John. Eternal life, by the way, is also, that phrase, eternal life, is everywhere in the book of John also. How, is, how does John, or Jesus here, define eternal life? That, you may, that they may know you. That's how you get eternal life. You know the Father. You know the only true God. The only real God. And also you know Jesus Christ. You can't know one without the other. If you know God the Father, you're going to know Jesus the Son. If you know Jesus the Son, you're going to know God the Father. This is a warning for all those philosopher types and theologian types who love to talk about God. They know God. But Jesus, well, you know, he's just a good prophet. He's a prophet or he's a teacher, but he's not really God. Or Jehovah's Witnesses, Arian types who think that Jesus is a junior God. No. You know Jesus, you know God, because they're both God. They're both divine. Now that word know, this is eternal life, that you may know, they may know you. Know, of course, in English, has a stronger connotation of knowing personally. Excuse me, not personally, but knowing abstractly or intellectually or cerebrally. I know how to do algebra. I know how far the sun is from the earth. But that's not how it's mainly used in Scripture. It has a much deeper sense. Genesis 4.1, and Adam knew Eve his wife. Does that mean that Adam looked at Eve and said, oh, okay, yeah, I know who you are. You're my wife. No, it means he had sexual relations with him, and she conceived and bore Cain. He's not going to get Eve pregnant by just knowing that she's, a, she's his wife. And, of course, sexual intercourse is the ultimate in personal intimate relationships. So this is the idea that the word know has. To know personally. Like, oh, I know who you are. I know. I know you. I know you. You're my long-lost friend. You know, that kind of thing. Not, oh, I know who that person is. His name is John Smith. No, that's not what it means. It means you know somebody personally. Genesis 3, 5. This is the serpent speaking to Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, our eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That, that should be your eyes. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Does that mean that Eve and Adam are just going to know what good is and what evil is? No, they're going to actually participate in it. 
They're going to know what evil is when their conscience gets them, and when they actually do something evil, they're going to. They're not just going to be academically thinking about evil. They're going to be doing it because they're intimately connected with it. Jeremiah 22:15 through 16. He, this is referring to one of the kings of Judah. Jeremiah speaking. Jeremiah speaking about one of the kings. He says he defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? In other words, here is not knowing facts about the Lord God, it, but it's uh, actually defending the poor, defending the poor and getting to know God personally. Here's how Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology puts it, quote, The Hebrew root yada, translated know or knowledge, appears almost 950 times in the Hebrew Bible. It has a wider sweep than our English word know including perceiving, learning, understanding, willing, performing, and experiencing. To know is not to be intellectually informed about some abstract principle, but to apprehend and experience reality. Knowledge is not the possession of information, but rather its exercise or actualization. Thus, biblically, to know God is not to know about him in an abstract and impersonal manner, but rather to enter into his saving actions. To know God is not to struggle philosophically with his eternal essence, but rather to recognize and accept his claims. That's, you know, a lot of philosophers do that. They, oh, what's the essence of God? No, but rather to recognize and accept his claims. It is not some mystical contemplation, but dutiful obedience. So, if you want eternal life, you know God, and you know the Son. That's verse 3. Now in verse 4 and 5 in John 17, we read this. I have glorified, this is Jesus, says, I have glorified you, the Father, on the earth by completing the work that you, the Father, gave me, the Son, to do. Now, Father, glorify me, glorify me, Jesus, in your presence with that glory I had with you, with the Father, before the world existed. Now, you can divide the book of John up, uh, John, excuse me, the chapter of John 17 up into three parts. First part is John, Jesus praying for himself. The next part is Jesus praying for his disciples. And the third part is Jesus praying for all believers. Now, right here, Jesus is praying for himself. If you think about it, he is being he he is he is he's praying for himself but what he's praying that he would glorify the father because his prayer and his work was not self-centered as the NIV study bible points out because he, Jesus says I have glorified you the father on the earth how by completing the work you gave me to do now Jesus hadn't totally completed it yet he hadn't died on the cross but he's of course had that great three and a half year ministry and he's speaking sort of in advance here a little bit I I'm I'm going to glorify you I'm going to give you Give the Father all the glory that the Father deserves. By completing the work you gave me to do. So God sent Jesus on the earth to die on the cross and to be resurrected again. This is a great application. You want to glorify God. Do the work on earth that God gave you to do. I mean, Jesus is our exemplar. He did what the Father told him to do. If you and I do what the Father tells us to do, we will give glory to the Father. And Jesus says in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Again, I've mentioned that there's a lot of glory. The word glory shows up a lot in this passage. It means to proclaim the excellence of of the one being glorified uh, to the world. And so, so Jesus is saying, Father, let me be glorified in your presence when I'm resurrected with that glory I had with you before the world existed. In other words, I'm getting ready to be killed, I'm going to be resurrected, and then all the glory, if the world could see it, we would be totally glorified. It would be majestic and awesome. Give me that glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, 
This phrase, before the world existed, shows that Jesus was preexistent. This is obvious. Only a heretic would deny that. We think of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's before the world existed. And he was not in his incarnate, canonic, humble state. He didn't get tired and hungry. He didn't get nailed up on a cross. He was God. He was the son that people bowed down in heaven would bow down before. And our bowing down before all the angels and departed saints. So Jesus, as I said before, he's not talking about his humili humiliation now, his crucifixion. He's focusing on the glorification that's going to come. We go to John 17, verse 6. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now the world that Jesus is talking about here is the Jewish unbelieving world. That word can often mean that, as the commentators say. And those 12 disciples, or 11 now, came from that world of Jews who are unbelieving. And so God gave the 12 disciples to Jesus, or the 11, I should say. Now he gave those 11, and Jesus revealed the Father's name to them. The Father's name means the Father's characteristics, his attributes, his authority, everything that the name stands for. The name stands for the person, so basically... Jesus has revealed the person of the Father to the men, the eleven disciples that you gave me from the world, out of the Jewish unbelieving world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They were yours. That means they were predestined from the foundation of the world to belong to God the Father. They were yours. And then the Father, you gave them to me. Again, salvation is a gift from God. And they have kept your word. Now notice kept. Despite all the disciples' weaknesses, all the apostles' weaknesses, Jesus gives them credit for keeping God's word. Here's some examples of their weakness when Jesus chastised them. For example, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. When Peter said, no, don't go down to Jerusalem, get crucified. They were there at Caesarea Philippi, north of the Sea of Galilee. And then at the Last Supper, Jesus tells Peter, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter said, no, I'll never leave you. Yeah, you will. You're going to deny me three times. He said to Doubt and Thomas, after the resurrection, blessed are those who believe, who have not seen. You, Thomas, you had to see. You had to have it proven to you. And about six times, I think I counted in the Gospels, he said to the disciples, Oh, you of little faith. Like Peter's walking on the water. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, the disciples can cast out the demon as they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, you of little faith. So he's constantly teaching them and, and correcting them and chastising them. But that didn't mean that they didn't haven't kept God's word. Good application for us. Of course, you're not perfect, but that doesn't mean you haven't kept God's word. Yes, you have kept God's word if you do the fundamentals of your faith. You pray to the Lord. You confess your sins. You grow in the Lord. You become more sanctified. You become more holy. You suffer things in this life and learn obedience and all of that. You've kept God's word, even though you're not perfect. Those disciples weren't perfect either. Now, I mentioned that John 17 could be divided up into prayer for Jesus. That's verses 1 through 5. Now we start in the prayer for the disciples in verse 6. I have revealed your name to the men, and he's, he's, he's pointed them out, and now he's going to start praying for them. Well, he's not going to start praying for them yet. He's going to talk more about them in verses 7 and 8. Now, they know that all things you have given to me are from you. Once again, the words of the Father belong to the Son. The words of the Son belong to the Father total unity between the Father and the Son, even though they're distinct persons. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you, because the words that you gave me I have given them. 
They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Now, God gives words to the Father and then, excuse me, God the Father gives words to the Son and then the Son gives those words to the apostles. He says that in verse 8, because the words that you the Father gave me the Son, I have given them the disciples. Now, what does that say about liberals who say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't care what Paul said. Well, Paul wasn't one of these disciples. Okay, how about... um, how about uh, John? So we're not going to believe the book of John. We're not going to believe John, the letters of John. Well, you just violated Jesus' word. You can't believe Jesus' word without believing the apostles. And that, of course, includes the apostle Paul and Peter, whose words were recorded by Mark. So they have received them, received the words that Jesus gave them, have known for certain that I came for you. Now they know. Now they know that Jesus is God. It took a lot of three and a half years of teaching them, but they know it. They have believed that you sent me. They have believed that you sent me. One is not going to know the Father until one believes that Jesus has been sent from God. You're not going to believe in God unless you believe that God sent Jesus to the world to forgive us for our sins. And you need to appropriate to know God, to get eternal life, and confess those sins so that Jesus can wipe them out. We go to verse 9, John 17, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Again, there's the gift the Father gave the Son, the gift of the apostles because they are yours they're not only jesus's they're also god the father's because they are yours the fathers so they belong to god the father god the father because they were predestined from the foundation of the world and then they were given to jesus and because they've been given to jesus jesus is going to pray for them now you notice he says i'm praying for them but i'm not praying for the world well the world is the unbelievers and you say oh why that's not fair that's Why would the Son of God not pray for the world? Well, he gave the world plenty of chances. How many times did he go to the Jews and give them signs, give them miracles, give them teaching of the Father? And what did they do? They killed him after persecuting him for three and a half years. Please. That's why he's not praying for the world. The cup of their iniquity had been filled up, as Adam Clark put it. And, of course, what's the point of praying for them? They're going to be destroyed in AD 70, as Adam Clark points out. So he was not praying for the world. In fact, just... Let's see, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, the Tuesday before the Olivet Discourse, he told him that that Jewish world was going to be destroyed, wiped out. So that's why he's not praying for the world, because their, their judgment had come. At some point, there's no point in praying. John Gill, who's a strong Calvinist, said when he, when he considers this word world, I'm not praying for the world, he said that Jesus didn't die for those in the world, so he didn't pray for them. He died for the elect, limited atonement. And so that's why he's praying for them. So if you take the world in a more general sense of all the unbelievers in the world, not just the Jewish unbelievers, but Gentile unbelievers too, then you've got Jesus not praying for them. Why? Well, because the Father didn't give them to him. So there's no point in praying for people who are predestined to go to hell. Now, I know that's hard for some of you Armenians to take. might be hard for a lot of people to take, but the implications are very strong and very clear. If they're not, you've got a lot of explaining to do. He's praised for the elect. Now, if you are in the elect... And you probably are if you're listening to this tape, this audio. Realize that Jesus prays for you. And remember the verse in Hebrews 7, I believe it is, that Jesus always lives to give, to make intercession, intercession for us. He's always praying for us. That's not bad to have the Son of God praying for you and for me. Now, how, do the, how would an Armenian get around what I just said? I'm not praying for the world. Adam Clark, Armenian extraordinaire, 
says that Jesus now is not praying for the world, but in 11 verses later, he's going to start praying for the world in, in, in John 17, 20. There Jesus says, I pray not only for these, for these apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Well, the problem with that, Adam Clark, is that Jesus is not only going to pray for the disciples, but also for the other Christians who believe in Jesus through the message of the apostles. That's praying for the elect still. That's not praying for the non-believers in the world. There's nothing in this passage that talks about praying for non-believers in the world. I just, I'm sorry, that's the way it is. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for people that are not saved, obviously, because we don't know whether they're in the elect or not. You know, I pray for a lot of people who aren't saved, and and, and I don't know whether they're going to get saved or not. But Jesus, very, I assume he knows who's going to get saved and who's not. He's not praying for those who are not who are in the world. He's going to pray for the elect, for those that God has given to him, at least in this high priestly prayer. Now, you could always argue, well, maybe he did it some other time, and you can get, go off and on about that theological argument. All right, so let's go to verse 10 in John 17. Everything I have is yours. Everything I, Jesus, have is yours, the Father's, and everything you, the Father, have is mine, Jesus's, and I have been glorified in them. Everything that the Father have, once again, close personal identity between the Father and the Son. Everything passes from the Father. What is that? All things. This, the Greek is the neuter. So all things could be everything, including God's knowledge, God's power, God's everything. Or it could include all persons I have is yours. Every, every, every person, every believer I have is yours. Well, the word is neuter, so everything I think is the better translation. That's the way my home and Christian study Bible translates it. So everything that God has belongs to Jesus because Jesus is God. Jesus says, I've been glorified in those things. What are some examples of what? Well, the verse says, I have been glorified in them. Now that them then would refer, it could refer back to the first word in the verse, every, everything is in every one, all persons, as John Gill says, and I've been glorified in, in them. Or it could be everything in general, but the disciples would be included in everything. And so what Jesus is saying is that the disciples themselves bring me glory. I have been glorified in them. Now what are some of the things that the disciples will do to glorify Jesus? The have, the, first of all, we've got to deal with the tense. Have been the King James translates it as, I am glorified in them with a sense of a future, a future sense, like I am going to the store. That's present tense formally, but semantically it means I'm going to the store tomorrow. It means in the future. So when Jesus is saying, I am glorified in them, that means I'm going to be glorified in them. And John Gill gives some examples. Uh, the disciples will ascribe, ascribe divine perfection to Jesus. They will ascribe Jesus' works as coming from the Father. They will say that they were completely saved by Jesus. They will believe in Jesus. They will walk worthy of Jesus. They will suffer patiently and cheerfully for Jesus. And they will keep Jesus' commands. That's how the disciples are going to glorify Jesus. To, to, to broadcast Jesus' excellent attributes to the whole world. And that's what the disciples did. We go to verses 11 and 12. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name, so that you have given me, that, that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Here Jesus calls the Father, Holy Father. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus uses that phrase. It reminds one of, of, the, of the beginning line of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be thy name. In other words, you 
make holy the name of the Father. And Jesus did that. Now, he's talking to the disciples, so he says, I want, I pray that they may be one as we are one. Later on, he's going to talk about the other believers, that he wants them to be as one as God the Father and God the Son are one. Right now, he's just talking about the apostles. And notice how unified they are to be, that they may be one as we, capital W, we, the Father and the Son are one. Well, how one... How unified are the Father and the Son? We've been talking about that over and over again. They're incredibly unified. So what what a comparison to make. The disciples should be one in the Spirit. Now that is a prayer that has not been and will never be completely manifested in this life. That raises a theological question. How can the Son ask the Father something and not have it answered? Just like when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Well, the Father didn't forgive them because he wiped them out in 8070. So... Uh, I I guess you could say that uh, the Son does not necessarily in his humanity have all of his prayers answered. I, that's a deep theological question. I don't have the answer to it. But at any rate, we know what the aspirational goal is, is that, we're, that the disciples are supposed to be one as God the Father and God the Son are one, and later on, Christians are supposed to be that unified. And he says, while I was with them, in other words, on this earth, I was protecting them by your name, by the Father's name. Name means by the authority of the person whose name it is. So Jesus is protecting them by the authority of God, by the name that you have given me. God the Father gave the, the God the Father gave his authority, his name to the Son. And because of that, Jesus guarded them and not one of them is lost, except the son of perdition. So Jesus protected them all through the earthly ministry of Jesus and it was very dangerous. He could have gotten killed numerous times. None of the disciples got lost during that ministry. Not one of them got lost except for the son of destruction because he was stupid enough to betray Jesus, so Jesus makes that exception. So that the scriptures may be fulfilled, there is no particular scripture about about guarding the disciples. So some people say, well, that, it, that John is just, ref- or Jesus is just referring to the general sense of the scriptures that some are saved and some are damned, and so the ones that are saved are the apostles and the one that's damned is Judas, and so that's the scripture. That's kind of loose if you ask me. Gill suggests another option is that Jesus is referring to the, the, the destruction of the son of perdition, Judas. It's Psalm 109.8, let his days be few, let another take his position. I tend to think that's what Jesus was talking about, referring to that scripture and any other scriptures like that. Scriptures like that referring to Judas, the son of destruction being lost. Now let's look at this phrase, that they may be one, that Jesus says. He's praised that they may be one. It sounds like that the unity that he's praying for will happen in the future. He wants it to happen in the future. But actually, the NIV Study Bible points out that the unity is already given. It's not to be achieved. The meaning is that they continue to be one rather than that they become one. So Jesus will be saying here, Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may continue to be one as we are one. And I guess those apostles were pretty unified as they... Same mud, same blood. They went through the ministry with Jesus. That was quite a three and a half years that I'm sure they would never forget. We go to verse 13 of John 17. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy, so that they, my apostles, may have my joy completed in them. Jesus' joy is completed in the apostles. Jesus says, I'm coming to you. That means he's going to die and go to heaven. So he's going to be with the Father. I'm coming to you, the Father. I speak these things in the world. In other words, while I'm down here on earth, and I'm speaking these things to my disciples down here on earth, so that they may have my 
uh, the Jesus' joy, the joy of going to the Father and being with the Father and having conquered death, that same joy will be completed in the apostles. So think about that. The joy that Jesus had by resurrecting and going to heaven, that's the joy that we're going to have, that the apostles were going to have, and by extension, all Christians of the world are going to have when we also will be resurrected and be with him. It's amazing to me how he's talking about joy at a time when he's about to be tortured and executed. He can sit there and think about the joy of being with the Father. Now, Jesus spoke all these things about being resurrected and having joy and so forth. Why? Because the disciples were very soon going to be facing very bad persecution. They needed encouragement. They were also going to be facing the loss of their Lord whom they loved. He was going to die. John 17, verses 14 through 16. Jesus continues, I have given them, the apostles, your, the Father's word. The world hated them because they are not of the world as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them, that you, the Father, protect them from the evil one, from the devil. They, the apostles, are not of the world I, as I am not of the world. All right, the world, as I've said earlier, is the world that is hostile to God and God's people, and more precisely, it's probably the Jewish, the Jewish world, because that's the hostility they were right then facing. Now, why does the world hate them, hate Jesus, and hate the apostles? John 15, verses 18 through 19, a couple chapters earlier, we read this. Jesus is speaking. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. It hated me, Jesus, before it hated you, the apostles. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And that shows the never-ending enmity between the world and those who are in Christ. The world hates us. That's the way it's going to be. They hated the master. They hated the people who followed the master. When Jesus says that his disciples are not of the world... The NIV Study Bible says that means the disciples don't have the mindset of the world, which is hostility to God. The average person in the world, I don't care how good they are, how nice and how sweet, they are hostile to God because they don't want to listen to God. Jesus says in verse 15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. In other words, by letting them die and go to heaven or maybe even translate them like Enoch and Elijah or something like that. He's saying, I'm not praying that they get all the good stuff right now. I'm saying I'm going to send them in the world, but I want you to protect them from the devil, from the evil one. First John 5:19 says this, we know, John speaking, we know that we are of God. The apostles are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Yet the world, that's the world that's hostile to God, is under the sway of the evil one. That does not mean that Jesus is not Lord over all flesh, like we just read just a few verses previously. He has authority. Jesus has authority over all flesh. He is the king of the world, of, of the planet. He has total authority. But the devil has authority over his world. He worketh in the sons of disobedience. Now, this is a good application for us. As bad as things are now in this world, and people in the world are going to hate us, but we have Jesus' protection because he's saying, I am praying that you protect them from the evil one. Later on, he's going to expand this prayer from the apostles to the Christians in general. So that's good news. We need to be protected because the world hates us. And when Jesus says in verse 14, I have given them your word, that's logos or logon, the accusative of logos, which means word or doctrine or teaching. I have given them your teaching. In other words, the Father has revealed everything to the Son, and then the Son teaches the apostles, and of course, then the apostles teach us. 
Now, one last comment on these two, three verses. In verse 15, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. That does not mean that every individual Christian is going to be protected from death. Some disciples are going to get killed. All throughout history, Christians have got killed. If you look at it individually, that's not true. But collectively, the church has never been extinguished. And so when he says you protect them, they are not, uh, you, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, that you protect them. You protect them as the church, as a group, which means that they collectively are going to endure, going to survive. doesn't mean that individually where somebody might not get killed. Jesus continues with a high priestly prayer in verses 17 through 19 of John 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Sanctify them, the apostles, by the truth. Sanctify means to make holy. It means separated from the world and dedicated or consecrated to God. Very simple definition. It works all the time. Now, there's two connotations of that word. It could be talking about personal sanctification or holiness as a synonym. It could be talking about personal holiness. I'm personally separated from the world and dedicated to God. Or it could mean that it could refer not to your personal spiritual characteristics of being sanctified, but it could be referring to the fact that you have separated yourself from the world in order to dedicate your, your life to the service of God. So as Adam Clark says, there's two meanings. One is to consecrate for God's service. The NIV Study Bible and John Gill mentioned that also. And the other meaning is personal holiness. Well, it can't mean personal holiness then, because he said in verse 19, I, Jesus, sanctify myself for them. How can Jesus make himself personally holy? He's already personally holy. So what he means is, I am separating myself to you, God, for service to you in order to take care of them. I sanctify myself for them. I'm dedicating myself, consecrating myself, separating myself from the world that hates me and hates my disciples. I am separating myself from the world, dedicating myself to you, Father, so that I can take care of the apostles so that they may also be sanctified by the truth, so that they may be separated from the world, dedicated to God by the truth. And, of course, the truth is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sanctification is closely connected with the Word of God, which is truth. He says, your word is truth. There's a good definition of truth. Truth has two meanings. One is real, something that's real and not false, or real and not illusionary, real and not fantastic, real and not imaginary. Or it could just mean true as opposed to false. Well, here... The word, it has both connotations here. The, the word of God is true, meaning it's real. It's not imaginary. And it's also true in the sense that it's not false. So the word of God, which is the word of the Father, actually, your word, your, the Father's word is truth. And, of course, Jesus speaks to them that same word, which is truth. And that word sanctifies, sets the apostles apart from the world and dedicates them and consecrates them to their Father. Now, this idea that your word is truth, this is a very good note for those touchy-feely Christians who don't like Bible study, and there are way too many of those. Folks, I don't care how emotionally, artistically inclined you are, or how pragmatically mission-minded or evangelistic you are, you need to have the word of God in you at some level, in some form or fashion, because God's word, the Father's word, is truth, and you are sanctified by that truth. You are made holy. You are prepared for service. Here's some ideas about being sanctified because of the word. John 15:3. You are already clean, holy, because of the word I have spoken to you. Colossians 1:5. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel, the word of truth. 
I think other translations have the word of truth. The gospel, so you see, the gospel, the word, the, the teaching, the doctrine, is closely allied with truth. Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, you want to get sealed, you want to get sanctified. Remember, God's word is truth, so get, get in the word. The Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, is good enough for you and me. Jesus makes an analogy between how God the Father sent him, the Son, in verse 18, into the world. Likewise, he sent his apostles into the world. The world is an un unhappy and unhealthy place. God sent Jesus in the world, and the world persecuted him. Likewise, Jesus is sending the apostles in the world, and the world is going to persecute them. He knew it. He had experienced it. But he could do that because he knew that he was going to protect them. That's why he prayed for them, that they would be protected. That's in the previous verse. We go to John 17, verses 20 and 21. And now... As I said earlier, Jesus starts out the prayer praying for himself. Then in the middle of the prayer, he prays for his disciples. Now he's going to switch to praying for all Christians. Verse 20, I pray not only for these, for these apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their message, through the apostles' message. That means that we believe in Jesus because of the words of the apostles. That means the Bible's important because the Bible contains the words of the apostles. It ain't some kind of mystical revelation all the time. It's through the Word of God, the Bible. Verse 21, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Now, he's already prayed that the apostles be one in the previous verse, verse 11. And now he's praying that the believers, all believers, not just the apostles, will be one. How one should they be? How unified should they be? As the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. As you, Father, are in me, and I, Jesus, am in you, the Father. Again, you're not going to get much closer than that. And when you say in, that means in union with. So the Father, you are in union with me, and I'm in union with you, and I want all Christians to be in union with each other like that. Great aspirational prayer. You say, well, was that prayer ever answered? Well, I do know that there is great unity among Christians. I feel that I, I can get along with, I, I can, I want to help people who are Christians much more than the average person. I want to get to know people who are Christians much faster than the average person who doesn't know Jesus. I've experienced this over and over again. So there is spiritual unity. Whenever we have communion, that creates unity. We take that one bread. Because we eat of one loaf, we are in union with one another, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So, yes, there is a lot of unity that comes through the Holy Spirit and Jesus' prayer is answered in that sense. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of disunity. And as I said earlier, does that mean Jesus' prayer was not answered? Well, maybe we need to give it some time. Maybe it'll be answered in the future. Maybe the answer won't be till the very end of time when Jesus comes back and we're all in him and all the theological and personal differences will be obliterated. But at any rate, if it's not going to happen yet, it's at least an aspiration we ought to keep our eyes on because there ain't nothing better than being in one with your brothers and sisters, and there ain't nothing worse than to be in division with them. It's one thing if I'm alienated from a non-believer, but when it's a believer, it's terrible, because they are my brother and sister. It's a lot more painful when there's disunity in that way. So the unity with each other, in verse 21, Jesus prays for, may, may they all be one. He also prays that they be in union, not only with each other, but also with God the Father and God the Son. Verse 21, may they also be one in us, capital U in my version, Holman Christian Study Bible, may they also be one in us. So we Christians are in union with God the Father and God the Son. 
with the result that the world may believe that you sent me, because when people see unity between people, human beings are not naturally in unity with one another. Human beings naturally hate and despise one another. And so when the world sees people actually caring for one another, oh, that's a powerful witness. How many people have been saved because of that? Now, I asked when we were, we were on verse 11, when Jesus was praying for the unity of the apostles, were they one? And I said, well, it's not really clear that this happened yet. But actually, you can go to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and see that there was a unity between the apostles. Well, actually, I did, it's clear that the apostles were one with one another. That prayer was answered. Pray that they may continue to be one. The question as to whether the prayer about unity was answered is when Jesus extended that prayer to all believers, because all believers are not one now. So that's where the problem is. But if you go back to the apostles in verse 11, where Jesus prayed that they be one, we can read in Acts 4.32 and see that that prayer was answered. Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions were his own, but instead they held everything in common. One heart and one mind. Now this this notion that the believers are in one with the Father so that the world may believe that God has sent him, it can be abused because then you start people can start thinking, well, I can't say anything bad about somebody that's wrecking my church because that'll show we're not in union. That means I can, we can't do church discipline. Well, that's foolishness because uh, church discipline must be done according to Matthew 16 and 18. Now, the divisions are not groundless. There's rules of procedure to keep you from dividing over stupid things and being bitter about it. But so, yeah, we're supposed to do church discipline. Paul divided from Barnabas. Excuse me, not Barnabas. Well, Barnabas too. And, and uh, John Mark. Because they had a disagreement on how to do mission work. Those things happen. And you do have to do church discipline. you gotta make, you got to decide who you're going to work with. But that doesn't mean you're not in union with them because you care about them as a Christian brother or sister. And the ultimate example of what I'm talking about, about sometimes you can't have unity, is right here in the high priestly prayer. Because Jesus said in verse 11... I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except for the son of perdition. Jesus didn't push unity to the point where he didn't let justice be done to Judas Iscariot. And likewise, sometimes there's people in the body of Christ that we've got to kick their rear ends out before they destroy the unity of the body of Christ. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Yet till this living brotherhood in Christ shall show itself strong enough to destroy the sectarianism, selfishness, carnality, and apathy that eat out the heart of Christianity in all the visible sections of it, in vain shall we expect the world to be overawed by it. Well, I tell you, today in America, the church is ripped asunder. As we have so many divisions, take a computer to keep up with it, and it really is a shame. That's why I, one reason I refuse to be associated with a denomination, because as soon as I'm associated with a denomination, that means I've divided myself from every other denomination in the world, and that is why I believe what C.S. Lewis said, mere Christianity. I believe what Watchman Nee said about that denominations are a sin against the unity of Christ. I refuse to be a member of a denomination. Now, sometimes I might go to a church that's a member of a denomination. I can't help that. But me personally, I ain't there. Now, here... In verse 21, Jesus says, he prays that the disciples be one with the Father and the Son, so that the world may believe that you, the Father, have sent me the Son. The world. Well, again, whenever you see world, you have to say, is that the Jewish world? Is that the whole Gentile world? Is it, is it the unbelieving world? What is it? Well, Adam Clark says this, quote, 
We have already seen that the word cosmos, world, is used in several parts of this last discourse of our Lord to signify the Jewish people only, as I pointed out. But here, I really think he's talking about the whole world so that the whole world, Gentiles and Jews, may believe you sent me when they see the unity of the apostles. I don't know why you would want to restrict that to the Jewish world. Let's go now to verses 22 and 23. I have given them the glory you have given me. I, Jesus, have given them, the disciples, the apostles, the glory you have given me. You, the Father, have given me the Son. May they be one as we are one. He repeats that same prayer for the for the believers, not just the apostles, but believers. May they, I should have said the apostles, may they, believers in general, be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. You, the Father, are in me. Total union and Jesus is in us. He's in union with us. May they be made completely one so that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Again, there's the idea of witness. When the world sees the unity of believers, then the world will know that God the Father has sent the Son. Now, how important is unity when we think about this is the what we're showing the world? I'm telling you. The last thing you need to think about is splitting with your brother over something. I know sometimes you have to do it, but it's at the last resort. Pretty high standard. Even as the Father and the Son are unified, that's how we're supposed to be unified. And Jesus says in verse 23, 22, I have given them glory. Now, back then he's probably he's referring to um, he's probably referring to his apostles at that point. He honored that group of stumbling, bumbling, confused fishermen, did he not? We're still talking about them 2,000 years later. How did he give him glory? Well, John Gill says, gave him the glory of deity? No, of course not. He didn't make him God, but he did give him the ability to work miracles. Gill and Clark deny that that's what he meant. Gill affirms, and Clark mentions the option that the glory that Jesus gave the apostles was the glory of the gospel. Quote from Gill, Glorious in its author, a matter and subject, in its doctrines, in the blessing, grace it reveals, and promises it contains, and in the efficacy and usefulness of it to the souls of men. Another option, Jesus has given glory to the apostles because he has given them glory that they will share together in heaven. Jameson Fawcett and Brown denies that. Or it could be the glory of being in union with Christ and being sanctified in Christ. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that. So whatever it is, I don't know if we have to be too particular about that, but God, Jesus has given us glory, us Christians glory. He's going to exhibit us before the whole universe and say, these are my people. This is the new redeemed manhood, the new redeemed humanity, the way I created it to be. Except now it's even higher than that. It's glorified, resurrected, purged, sanctified, glorified. We're going to have glory just as the Son has glory now after his resurrection and return to God the Father. So in verse 23, we see that the Son is in the believers and the Father is in the Son. I am in them and you, the Father, are in me. You go through and find these in, do a word study on in, and it's everywhere. Father's in the Son, the Son's in the Father, the Father's in the believers, the believers are in the Father, the, the Son is in the believers, and the believers are in the Son, and the believers are in each other, in union with, unity. Verse 24, Jesus continues praying, Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Because those to whom... Those whom have been given to the Father, we are destined to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to see him face to face. It's not going to be through the Holy Spirit indirectly anymore. We're going to see Jesus face to face. 
with that same glory that God gave the Son. Why? Because the Father loved the Son before the world's foundation, pre-existent, before the world, during the pre-existence of the world, before the world was even made. God the Father and God the Son were reflecting each other's glory. Jesus says, I desire that the Christians that you have been given to me will be where I am. Where is that? In heaven with God. That's what his desire is, and he's going to get his desires. That's where we are going to be. And again, it's not for everybody in the world. It's for those you, the Father, have given me the Son. Limited atonement. He died for the elect. He died for the church. And if you're in that elect, you're going to be where Jesus is, in heaven, seeing Jesus face to face. By the way, the tense of that I am, I desire those you've given me to be with me where I am. Jesus is not there yet. He's not in heaven yet. That's going to happen in the future, but it's the present tense. Well, that happens a lot. He uses the present tense, but he's referring to the future. Here's an example. Will you support me? I'm with you. I am with you. I'm with you when you get nominated. I'm with you. But that's present tense, but it means in the future. Or I am going to the store tomorrow. That's present tense, but the future is meant. And so that's you got to be careful with these tenses. They're not rigid like mathematics. Language is a little bit fuzzy. So he's using the present tense to express the future. John 17, verse 25. Righteous Father. One time he called him Holy Father earlier. Now he says, Righteous Father. The world has not known you, however I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. There's that contrast between the world and the believers. Holy Father is the only time it was ever used in the previous verses in this discourse, in this prayer. Righteous Father, only time that this address is found in the New Testament. Now, the verse says that these, the disciples, have known that you sent me. They didn't know God directly, but they didn't know that God had sent Jesus. And that was that's the knowledge they needed to get saved, to have eternal life. You know the Son, you know the Father. Verse 26 in John 17. I made your name known, I, Jesus, made your, the Father's name known to them, and will make it known, so the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. There's that unity again, in union with. So the Father's love is going to be in the believers, and Jesus is going to be in the believers. Now, when did Jesus make the Father's name known to them? John 17:6. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. That's because he taught them for three and a half years. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. So that's how he made the Father's name known to the disciples he taught them during jesus's earthly ministry and will make it known well the father's character is now going to be made more fully known by jesus when after the resurrection adam clark says after pentecost after pentecost adam clark says it might be then james fawcett brown doesn't make any difference the point is that after the crucifixion people are going to know even more people who believe in jesus are going to know even more about the father's name and when name stands for everything about the Father, his attributes, his power, his authority, we're going to know about that because of Jesus dying and going back to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It's one of the most exalted pieces of scripture you will ever read. It's one of the most encouraging prayers you will ever hear. Next audio, we're going to uh find jesus in the prayer in the garden of gethsemane we're going to skip all of his prayer in the garden because that's covered thoroughly in matthew mark and luke in the synoptic gospels but it's not covered in john but the next we will look up the next 12 verses we'll examine the next 12 verses in john 18 and we will 
discuss Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. I hope you listen. I hope you tune in for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.